Hello, welcome to Talk Julia. We're recording Friday, May 13th. My name is David Amos. And my name is Randy Davila. Randy, I am absolutely thrilled this week because we have a very special guest on the show, Viral Shah. Welcome to Talk Julia. I'm glad to be on the on the Talk Julia podcast. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's a real honor to have you on the on the show with us. Uh, we've been, you know, this is I think the fourth interview that we've done now, so we're still kind of figuring out how these interviews work and and been inviting some some people. But it's really exciting to have one of the co-creators of the Julia language here with us. So, Viral, to kick things off, why don't you talk a little bit about how you got into programming and computer science and uh, and maybe lead in a little bit then into how you started this whole Julia movement that's uh, that's happening. Yeah. So, oh gosh, when did I start learning how to program? So, it, yeah. So, in, so in my, yeah, so, so I, I actually grew up in, in Mumbai in India mm-hmm. and my school um, in, in eighth grade had, uh, uh, an, you know, a computer programming computers class. And uh, it was not a standard, what we call a board subject, right? So as in when you, you know, when you take your board exam in the 10th grade, it doesn't, there's no computer science in there. Um, So most people did not take it very seriously, uh, but I was just fascinated. And uh, I was introduced to BASIC back then. I think it was GW BASIC, if I'm not mistaken. And that's how I started. And I kept programming in BASIC all the way through um, into high school. In high school, we did have a computer, uh, science elective and and the interesting thing was in my high school that you could what we would have called college back in Mumbai in, in, in the 11th grade and if, if you could make it into the computer science program then you you could avoid taking biology and a second language and I was like this is a, <laughs> this is a win in both ways I, I you know get to spend more time programming and less time doing things that I'm not that interested in um, so you know but I kept kept um you know, doing a lot of, uh, BASIC was a really interesting environment and QBASIC especially that I discovered later. Um, uh, By that time also the the big thing that influenced me was uh, my parents actually uh, bought me a 486. Uh, It was a DX2 back then. And um, so now I had my own personal computer and I could just, you know, I I just kept getting drawn into, you know, the world of programming. Like, it's like, you know, as you can imagine, for someone uh, who's young, that like it's just a world with infinite exploration, and yeah. you can you can type things in, and then they happen as per your command. And um, QBasic was really cool in, ta- in that it had lots of graphics and all kinds of stuff. So I, I went through high school teaching myself physics by programming it. So that was sort of my <laughs> first foray into scientific computing as well. Like I just found that I, I learned physics better if I if I if I programmed it all. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so that's 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 the basic story, and then it's just one thing led into another. I you know um, uh, decided to follow computer engineering for my undergraduate in India, and um, you know decided to go for a PhD in computer science at UC Santa Barbara, where I again focused on uh, high performance computing um, for my for my thesis, and it was there that I met Stefan and and. Uh, um, Soon after graduating, I met with Jeff um, at the startup that we were working at uh, together. It used to be called Interactive Supercomputing, later got acquired by Microsoft. And it was at that point we were like, it's just so frustrating what the state of numerical computing has been over all these you know, decades. So at that point, I had been doing some form of 
numerical computing for practically, you know, 10 years at that point. What language were you using at the time? So in my thesis, uh, so, so through all, throughout all my undergraduate and my thesis work, it was largely C. Um, and, and then in, in, my, in my PhD, um, my actually, uh, the system I built was actually a parallel MATLAB. Um, there was a project at MIT that Alan Edelman had started. Um, it used to be called, um, I, I forget, I think it was called MIT MATLAB. It later on became a company, it was called star P. And the idea was you put a star P in front of a few variables and then those get automatically distributed. So it's a really cool system. <laughs> And that was my thesis work. So yeah, so that was sort of a MATLAB front end to a large C and MPI parallel backend. So that that's interesting because there's actually a lot of similarities with my own uh, story there in the sense that I also got started with BASIC and uh, and QBASIC in particular, and it was like a total accident uh, because my my parents had bought this uh, like 386 computer. And I it had a couple games on it. This one of them, I think it was called like Gorillas dot that yeah. And <laughs> do you remember that? <laughs> and I I remember I, I don't remember the exact line of thinking happened, but at one point I ended up opening the file like in a text editor and saw all this code and was like, whoa, what is going on here? And there was a comment at the top of it that had there was like a game speed variable. And uh, it had a little comment, you know, like change this number to change the speed of the game. And I changed it and then exited and ran it as the game. And it, you know, the speed was changed. And that just blew my mind. <laughs> I could just change a number and, and you know, change yeah. all, all this stuff in the game. So, yeah, I, I dabbled in QBasic for many, many years as a young kid. And like you said, it just felt like like infinite possibilities and and endless stuff. So that was also my own introduction into, <laughs> into programming. I feel there isn't an environment as productive as that for someone, you know, getting into programming, right? Because you could you could write code, you could do graphics, and, and yeah. especially the, the ease of graphics was just amazing. Yeah. And I still don't think today's systems have that. Like Scratch is infinitely more like accessible and easier to learn, but, and it has a different kind of graphics, but you know, this just like, all I needed was the primitive plot this point at this yeah. you know point, point point on the screen with this color, and I could just build anything I wanted. Like it was it was powerful. It was pretty powerful. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I I mean, my my parents have commented to me many times of how I, they would just be shocked at I would spend you know hours and hours and hours just sitting there <laughs> trying to figure out how to do something, and they couldn't believe how. Uh, how dedicated I was to it and, and everything. So yeah, it's nice to meet a, a fellow QBasic. <laughs> I love her. Um, well, I think one of my cousins at one point that handed me a book, uh, but you know, the original KNR, the, the Brian, you know, the Kronigan and Richie. Yeah. He's like, you might want to learn this C thing. And then, you know, like I, I was then like, Oh, blown away at this. At, at that point I'd already received Linux. Um, okay. I, you know, so this was, late 90s and in india at that point there used to be this magazine called pc quest and they would ship cds so you'd get mm -hmm. like slackware cd slackware linux and and i got that thing installed and i was like wow this is a crazy new world and then i had this knr <laughs> book and i learned c and i was like wow my programs are like infinitely faster than, than <laughs> basic and it just kind of kept drawing me in and i remember getting to if i remember it was chapter number four on pointers and i was like okay this is just a whole new thing now and it's you know, it's just like the rabbit hole kept getting deeper and deeper. Right. Yeah. So I'm curious to know what 
you mentioned that you were unhappy with kind of the state of numerical computing or there are things that were frustrating about it. What what were some of the things that, that you all found frustrating? So, you know, it's, um, it's, it's, you know, it is what we call the two language problem today, right? The term didn't exist and we actually coined it several years into our work on Julia um, because we kept getting asked this question, like, why did you create a new language and why should the work care? And mm -hmm. we needed a succinct way of sort of capturing the sentiment with which we started. And it was basically that, you know, until Julia came along, you had to write your algorithms in something high level. It often used to be MATLAB back then. R had sort of started getting really popular. Python was just about beginning to make an appearance and uh, was going to soon get into sort of, you know, it's, it's crazy, uh, you know, ramp up. Yeah. Um, but we were like, look, you know, you cannot write high performance code in any of these systems because you always have to drop down to C. And my own world of computational scientists, you know, was not people who came from computer science who would have known C or Fortran as a given, but these are people who were working in MATLAB or R or, or, or you know, well, Python was not that popular back then yet. But it was just frustrating to see that people had all these ideas. They wanted to sort of, you know, write these basic uh, models and simulations and so on. And they were restricted by their own, you know, by, by the limitations of the tools rather than by their imagination. And as a computer scientist, I knew that, you know, they could go a thousand X better. And, and I have an actual real story that actually spurred me into this direction, uh, which is a project that uh, that's called Circuitscape. It's still very alive today. Started in 2001 uh, with my, uh, my collaborator, Brad McRae started it. He was originally in Java. He could not hack Java. He was an ecologist. So he uh, got some, he, he somehow learned enough MATLAB and put it in MATLAB. And uh, it was barely running grids of like, you know, 100 nodes or something, right? Um, so think of a landscape of 100 pixels, right? Like it basically can yeah. simulate your parking lot, if at all. Um, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and then, you know, so he used to be at Santa Barbara, uh, which is where I went for my PhD work, uh, UC Santa Barbara. And, he heard about this, you know, PhD student in computer science who has a parallel MATLAB. So he's like, my MATLAB is really slow. Why not, you know, why don't you use your parallel MATLAB and then I can solve bigger problems. But then we started collaborating and it took a year for me to understand what he was doing and for him to, you know, understand what I was doing. And then it turned out that we could just rewrite the entire code in MATLAB and make it like, you know, a thousand times faster. So we had the first system. Um, but, you know, to run it, you needed MATLAB and no one had MATLAB. So we then did a transition to Python, which then became completely open source. Um, and that could run at much larger scale now because I had sort of reworked all the algorithms and all that. But I still could not do everything I could in order to get the program to work as fast as it ought to be. And finally, in 2015, I think, or 16, we got a grant from NASA to move it to Julia. And it's just screaming now in performance. And so in some sense, my own pain points around like I want to write this thing. I know what it can be in C plus plus or C or whatever, but you know Brad could never hack that code. Yeah. Um, but if there was a language that was sort of like high level but also high performance, um, it would make sense. So at, at, well, that was the takeoff point, right? And I suffered through this in my own PhD thesis. Um, Stefan had a very similar story. He was doing a lot of linear algebra for signal uh, signal processing wireless data. And he was using actually, um, you know, a mixture of Ruby and Perl and C. Um, and okay. then, you know, Jeff was uh, sort of always a language designer and 
you know, he came at it from a traditional computer science list perspective, like just languages can be better and what we have isn't good enough. So um, we just got a thread going. Uh, I remember this, this was in September 2009. Like, hey, the world needs something better. And then in two days, the first line of Julia appeared. <laughs> <laughs> It's, it's, there's, there's not much more thinking than that. Wow. I definitely remember th those days when I was in grad school at the CAM, the Computational and Applied Math Department at Rice. Um, grad students would often start with some physics problem or some like signal type of problem, and they would model it in MATLAB. And then to get to their dissertation, they had to transfer it to C or C++ to make and it like, actually like, usable. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I remember seeing, and I wasn't a part, like I was in the department, but I wasn't doing much computation at all. But I remember seeing it all over the place, just headaches of, like they have it working in MATLAB, but it's like months before it's ready in C++. Um, and um, actually, I'm reminded of a talk that I saw there. Um, one of the grad students gave a talk on Julia, and this was in 2012, 2013. I think yeah, it was version point six, zero point six, um, and he gave a talk on it and was like contrasting it with MATLAB, and um, like saying all these good things, and then he happened to like say something negative about MATLAB in the talk, and in the audience was a, a professor named Danny Sorensen, who was a part yes. of like LA Pack and yeah, Lots and of he, yeah, um, and he immediately was like, nope. MATLAB's still good, but I like where this is going. <laughs> well, I, I, I am the author of packages. Uh, da Danny is an AR pack coder to Julia. Danny's a, uh, he, he's a really funny professor. I used to um, play uh, uh, blues music at this blues bar by campus on Wednesdays. And I saw him there one time. And he did a cheers. He was he was like two eigenvalues. <laughs> yeah, that sounds like it. That sounds. Like it. <laughs> I think a message that message would resonate in the Julia community. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> for sure. <laughs> so you started Julia in 2009, and I'm trying to kind of think. So in 2009, I wasn't really well. I was still in in college, and um. I was studying computer science, mainly C++. So I wasn't, I hadn't even started using Python uh, really at that point. And I'm not really familiar like what the state of Python was in 2009. It was rough. It was rough. Yeah. Especially for numerical computing, not the Python language was right. in the form. Um, but NumPy was still in its early years. SciPy was a shadow of what it is now. Yeah. I wrote CircuitScape in Python around then. And it was it was difficult. It was extremely difficult. Like the graph libraries were not there, the sparse yeah. solos were not there, um, and and you know you could not drop down into Python syntax and write your own low level kernels because then that would just run at like pretty pretty bad speed. So right. Um, but but enough of it existed that we were able to find a path. I do consider myself at this point mainly a Python programmer, I and mean, that's where the vast majority of my professional experience has been uh, over the last, I guess, about eight years, eight-ish years now. And, you know, when I started learning Julia, which was not that long ago, I, I wrote my first code in Julia back in January <laughs> um, of this year. But I, I really felt like coming from a Python background, there were so many things that just 
clicked instantly getting into into Julia. And I know it's not an exact, you know, there's not like a, a one-to-one map between the syntax or anything, but uh, but it really, I mean, within the first week of me kind of going through the docs and, and learning the language, I was doing pretty complex stuff in Julia, and it just felt like it was a really rapid transition into it. Was was the Python syntax or, you know, some of the, the philosophy around that a big influence on the Julia syntax or, or what were some of the thought processes going on there? I think the, you know, uh, the syntax is broadly sort of, um, you know, uh, I, I would say it's less Python-like and it's, it, you know, if you have to sort of pick familiarity, it's uh, closer to, um, you know, MATLAB, Octave, Sci- Scilab, like those yeah. kinds of languages. Um, we were very clear from early on that we wanted one-based indexing because that's what made sense mathematically. <laughs> yeah. um, it's a perpetual internet uh, discussion topic, sure. as you already know. Um, um, and then, you know, I, I think many of us were just not sort of big fans of the white space kind of base syntax that Python has. And so we, we thought that that, you know, you know, uh, was was not the right way to go. At least that's um, that's how we started. And uh, there was a lot of, uh, a, uh, I would say that a lot of the early ideas actually are more functional in nature. So Jeff especially comes from, you know, the, you know, I mean, MIT list, uh, you know, mm-hmm. kind of crowd. And I would say that that style of thinking was probably more dominant than Python was. Like, remember, like when we started and like, it, it, like you know, we started in 2009, but our views were formed maybe even like, you know, five years building up to sure. 2009. And Python was not uh, a thing in that world yet. I mean, uh, it was beginning to get there. And I would say that Python was sort of learning from the same, uh, you know, legacy in some sense that we were, right? And and there were sort of, you know, these two different uh, things happening at the same time. Yeah, actually, I hadn't really thought about that because when I was in graduate school, I, I used MATLAB quite a bit. And actually, I taught uh, like seminars for undergraduates to use MATLAB. So there was that experience, which probably helped in just getting, you know, me picking it up as quickly as I, uh, I did. And, you know, the whole one indexing thing. So my, my very first professional programming job was with an audio visual company here in, in Houston. Uh, I was programming like control interfaces and automation and stuff for them. And it was all done in Lua. Uh, so, and, and that, you know, is a one in uh, one based index. And, uh, and that always just felt super natural to me coming with, cause my, my, uh, background is in mathematics. I have a degree in mathematics. I was at graduate school studying mathematics. Uh, so yeah, it felt really natural. And that was one of the hardest things for me when I started learning Python was just like getting that, like, okay, yeah, everything starts from zero. Like that <laughs> really was a really difficult mental, mental shift for me. And in some ways, that aspect of Julia kind of felt like, you know, like putting on a, a familiar, like comfortable slippers or something. <laughs> like just kind of like, okay, everything kind of feels more natural now. <laughs> that's how you learn to count, right? Like, you know, from so as, as a child, right? Also, right? Like, and if you look at like Fortran is one base, for example, although you yeah. can do arbitrary indexing in Fortran and you can do arbitrary indexing in Julia as well. I mean, there's yeah. a indexing package. Uh, are, right? are you familiar with the Star Wars arrays? Yes. That jail? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, was, that was made, I, I believe, by Mose, uh, Mose Giordano, uh, largely as a, <laughs> um, you know, as a way to like, 
can throw some fun into that argument. Right, right. like it doesn't really matter. Just... <laughs> but yeah, I would say that like, you know, Fortran for me was a bigger influence. Like I was like, okay. this is what we need to do. And there's this beautiful video of uh, the guys who actually designed Fortran. Like, I mean, I think you can find it on YouTube and it is, it is a wonderful video by uh, John Backus where IBM made this video probably in the 80s or something, interviewing the Fortran team. And if you listen to that, it sounds like if you remove the words Fortran from it and just replace them with Julia, it could be the same thing. Yeah, but I'll definitely you, check that out. I'm always watching YouTube videos. So this is this is this is uh, this is this is real gold. How how about C? How much influence did C have on the early design choices? Because sometimes when I look at the syntax, I get that C feeling. <laughs> I don't know. I say less of C, but like you know, you probably get a different answer if you ask Jeff or Stefan, right? Um, <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, I, I think the thing. Uh, the you know the the original why Julia blog post the why we created Julia blog post that we published on uh, in in 2012 like actually articulates it that there's actually a lot of different languages uh, that all of us used over time and mm. we sort of synthesized ideas from you know all of them across the board so some of the low level stuff especially if you're working with pointers and uh, you know doing pointer pointer arithmetic uh, so, so the underlying model, so actually you're right. So the reason why it feels familiar to see is uh, all, all your structs, right? So when you create a Julia data type, you create a structure, uh, struct, you create arrays, um, that whole thing maps pretty much one-on-one -on -one with C and V. And, and that was deliberate because we needed to be compatible with C. We wanted to be able to send Julia data structures to C and C data structures back into Julia. And, and, and it was pretty obvious that that was the way to do it and doing, you know, having LLVM and Clang sort of in that ecosystem um, made it relatively easier to do that. So that's the one thing you don't get in the other high level languages, right? The user defined data types and, and the tight control on memory layout. Like you could not define this um, effectively in, uh, I mean, you can do these things in every language, but they're not, you know, high performance uh, as right. in Julia. So currently you are the CEO of Julia Computing, correct? That is right. So how did Julia Computing get started and, and what kind of what's the story there? And, and yeah, tell us, tell us about yeah. that. So we started, uh, you know, so there were, there were four, four, four of us who started Julia, right? So myself, mm -hmm. Jeff, Stefan, and then, of course, Alan Edelman, who housed the whole project at MIT and uh, kept funding it, no questions asked. <laughs> um, even as everyone, including ourselves, believed that the world would, you know, maybe not adopt a new language. And, and, and the key point here is we knew it's a 10 year journey to get to the starting line, right? Yeah. We started in 2009. So I would say that, you know, we released 1.0 in 2018, right? So, and that's when I think we, we are like, okay, now we are in the race, uh, whatever the race is, but right. You know, my, my mental model is that you have maybe a couple of languages that get adopted in a decade, right? Like. In, in some broad way, right? Um, and, uh, you know, now I feel like this decade, the 2020s, potentially, like Julia was like the, the kindergarten version, right? Like it was emerging. I think this is the next, this decade now that you're at the starting point, you can emerge. And you kind of saw that happen with R and Python in the last decade and, you know, maybe right. JavaScript and Java in the decade before. So they all have this 10-year gestation period. I would say, if anything, Julia sort of, you know, because of GitHub and the internet and everything was able to grow faster um, than, you know, languages that started out in the 90s or the 2000s. Yeah. Um, and so it was sort of, so that was one observation, right? That this is, this is you know, it's, you know, when you start something like this, you have no idea where it's going to go. You start, start it as a hobby and like, 
I think the world would be better if this thing existed. It doesn't exist, so so that's how you get started. But then, sort of, you know, when it uh, you know starts building upon itself and it starts getting traction, then come the next level of questions like, okay, this is great, but now how do we make this self-sustaining and go for a long time? And um, you know, it was clear that we could not do this in an academic environment, whatever, because you're constrained by grant money. Grants kind of have this ebb and flow, and you know they, you know, sometimes there's a lot of it, and then sometimes it disappears, and people can't build their careers, uh, you know, around something like that, right? And and on university stipends, and so it was clear to us that at some point um, there is, you know, there has to be some other solution. We didn't know what it would be, um, but the other data point was that languages um are not commercializable unless you are google or oracle or microsoft with an exception and the exception was uh, languages for data science or you know anything analytical right where the businesses have been tremendously successful the first one being SaaS, uh, you know five billion dollars in revenue mathworks is a great success and there's a lot to learn there um and, and and increasingly our studio and Anaconda have been trailblazers in the open source language uh, businesses that now sustain a lot of the innovation in those ecosystems. So, yeah. you know, you know, in, in about 2015, you were standing at this crossroad of like, okay, we can't do this stuff at MIT, especially if we have to support customers commercially. And that's when, you know, the four of us, along with uh, two other co-founders, Ken Fisher and, and Deepa Quinci, came together and said, let's start Julia Computing. And that's how we got it off the ground. Um, having no idea what the business model would be. Um, <laughs> having no, you know, it's just sheer out, like just out of the sheer belief that this is important and we need to, you know, do it. Um, that's yeah. how we started. What is the, the business model as it stands right now? So the business model has evolved considerably over time. When we first started the company, you know, we were, you know, like, hey, this is an open source company. Um, so we are going to do a lot of consulting and training and then keep writing Julia on the side. Um, and that's, you know, in fact, how we founded the company, right? Like we started receiving some early contracts from uh, finance firms, uh, um, you know, from, from Intel was a big backer in those days. And, uh, and, and so that's how we got started. But we very quickly realized that if we are a consulting and training shop, then we are sort of helping everyone else. But Julia itself is not, you know, going forward. And if, if we don't work on Julia itself, then, then that's going to suffer. Yeah. So that's what led to the, you know, our, our, our seed round. So Donald Fisher, um, you know, who was back then an investor at General Catalyst. Um, it's right, right around here in Boston, in, in Cambridge. And, um, you know, he, you know, he, he had reached out, you know, he had connected to us right uh, all way back in 2013 saying, guys, there might be something here. But we were like, no, it's too early. We need to build out the community. We need to think this through carefully. So, but when we were ready in 2016, he was like, let's do it. And, uh, and we started the company imagining that there will be some kind of, uh, you know, product business that we build. Now, we knew that in the, very, in the first few years, we still had to focus on the open source project and the community without even thinking too much about the business, uh, which is what we did until we got to 1.0 in 2018. And that's when we started sort of taking stock of like, okay, there's, you know, let's look at the world around us. Let's see, you know, what's going on. Let's see what the role of Julia in that world is. And um, clearly, you know, the cloud had taken off. I mean, it was not was taking off. It had taken off, you know, 
Snowflake, uh, for example, was right out there, like, you know, growing rapidly. Um, and and you've seen several open source projects build a go-to-market uh, using, using uh, you know, cloud-based offerings. And that's when we started uh, down the same path as well. Um, and so that's our, our broad business uh, strategy today is fairly straightforward, right? Support the open source project and, and still continue to drive it and, and innovate there along with the community. Take that to enterprise customers on the cloud. So Julia Hub is our cloud system on which, yeah. which we think is the best way uh, for people to run Julia, right? Um, especially at large companies. Um, you know, people are working from home, working from any device. Increasingly, people are running workflows in their browsers on the cloud. Even the IDE lives on the cloud. You know, press a button, run your programs at scale, like, you know, Julia's distributed computing, GPU computing. Just make it easy, right? I mean, yes, technically, every developer in your organization could figure this out, but let's make it nice. Let's make everyone productive and, and let's make it reliable, scalable, all that good stuff. And as we have been going down that path, one of the things uh, you know we also started out was a partnership with our uh, colleagues at Puma's AI, which is a pharmaceutical um, company, a pharmaceutical software company. And uh, you know we we work very closely building a modeling and simulation tool for pharmaceuticals. And and then we started uh, you know doing the same for multi-physics simulation and uh, circuit simulation over the last couple of years. So we sort of saw this path of like, not only can we be on the cloud, but we can have this, you know, suite of modeling and simulation tools on top of it so that scientists and engineers who want to work on these kinds of things um, don't have to start from scratch in Julia, but they have something substantial to work with. And so that's sort of our go-to-business, uh, you know, go to, sorry, go-to-market uh, motion. And a lot of the underlying software um, and tools are open source. We, we've generally start not done weird open source licensing. So we strongly believe that there will never be like an open core Julia where Julia Computing has the, the better optimized version or like, right. you know, like the GPU backend you have to buy from us or something, right? Like we've been very clear that that needs to be completely MIT licensed and open source. But then there are... Uh, you know, value-added tools and services and products where, you know, where which are meant largely for professional use, which do not have large communities behind them, but have large buyers and users. And so we felt that that was the right, you know, dividing line that like there's an open source ecosystem and then there are products that we build on that, just like many other companies build commercial products on Julia, uh, Relational AI being one of them, Beacon Biosignals, Invenia. Um, I just met with the guys at Hafnium Labs, so it's just phenomenal to see that, and and we have a couple of those ourselves as well. Yeah. So, so that's that's the broad story. What has surprised you the most about like the Julia story, the Julia adoption, or like has there just been anything in particular that you're like, wow, we never imagined that that something like that would actually happen yeah. with the language? I think that's the biggest one, right? And and I I I always share this anecdote. Um, uh, from uh, uh, from Steven Johnson, right? And so, uh, you know, everyone probably knows Steve Johnson, the author of FFTW's professor at MIT. And one of the sharpest guys I know. And, um, you know, I would say that, and, and also core Julia contributor, by the way, and the Julia steward. Okay. Um, so, you know, back in 2009, <laughs> we started the project and I would visit MIT every year, you know, as part of a collaboration, like, you know, 2010, 11, and we'd go off to Steve's office. It used to be right next to Alan's uh, back then when there were offices, I suppose. 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> and Steve would be like, this is amazing, but you know you're doomed to fail. And uh, and and we would all be like, of course we know that, right? Like you're, you know, like, <laughs> you know that that's the default answer, right? That this is going to yeah. go nowhere. And then I'd go the next year, and then he would have like, you you know, you're probably doomed to fail. And then you're like, you're really doomed to fail. And, <laughs> and and you know, get you know, and but he say, he would say, but you know, you you know where you know where this might head. And we were like, absolutely. Uh, but at some point, you know, uh, he saw my FFT rappers, FFTW rappers in Julia, and he was appalled at what I had done. And so he got in there and did it the right way. And he was, <laughs> he was like, even though this may not go anywhere, I'm having a lot of fun doing it. Maybe he'll have a slightly different version of this story. But, but I think that captured the sentiment that, you know, you just, you know, don't take this lightly, right? Like you just, you know, you, you do it for yourself and to solve uh, a scratch and itch that you have. And, and the fact that, um, you know, when we announced it uh, with that, why we created Julia blog post that ended up going viral um, on Hacker News and Reddit that day, it was accidental, right? Like none of us even thought anyone's going to read it. And uh, we posted it and Stefan was on vacation. I was asleep. It was nighttime in India and it just blew up. And from like, it, it went from like being a four creator project for people who built it to being just like an overnight, like we, we were at a hundred serious contributors within that, within the next six months. Wow. Um, like off that blog post, like that's how powerful that was. That to me was the most surprising. From that point on, it kept compounding. I just wanted to ask if Alan brought his corgi to, to his office ever. I, I think he does. Uh, he, he has been for the last few years that I've known. So, so yes, that's, uh, and then he brings him to the class as well. I've never heard about this. Does he have a famous corgi or something? Yeah. Uh, so if you go to the, if you go to his uh, class, computationalthinking.mit.edu, you can see that, that Philip the corgi makes an appearance in oh, okay gotcha yeah. he's, he's always like in the background or barking or or alan's using like <laughs> like uh, image decompression on corgi pictures okay <laughs> <laughs> philip is as much part of the julia community as everyone else i think yeah <laughs> That's i agree funny. i agree the, of the next julia con not this one but the next one i assume which is going to be at MIT. Oh, nice. So awesome. it's, 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 we are, we are hoping it'll be co-located with Alan Edelman's, uh, 60th birthday celebration conference. So a mixture of both, you know, his math life and his computer science life. Yeah, that'd be great. So one of the things that surprised us the most, because this started out, I, we, we've shared this story a couple of times on the podcast. So I don't go into all the details, but you know, we, uh, this was just a hobby sort of passion project and really just a way for for me i i wanted to learn julia and randy had been using julia for a couple of years and uh he was like why don't we just do something public about it you know and and do this podcast and you know we like didn't know if anyone would actually listen to it and you know we weren't like really marketing anything about it or anything and it just seemed like instantly like we released an episode and the very next day there were like a hundred people that were <laughs> like kind of swarming around it like oh this is awesome like we've wanted a julia podcast for so long and and everything and i you know for me i guess that was the most surprising thing is just how passionate and friendly and welcoming and uh the the whole julia community is and how quickly we were just sort of like accepted into what feels like this family of uh, of people and it's been really you know heartwarming and just amazing to to see and we've just met so many uh, amazing people 
yeah. through it. So the community seems to be just incredibly strong. And, you know, I've been a member of the Python community for a while and Python has sort of this, uh, you know, I guess famous sort of, you know, community around it and, and similar, but, uh, but I guess it's grown so big at this point that, you know, I don't know, maybe it was more like Julia was back in, you know, maybe the early 2010s or something. There was a similar kind of feeling. I don't know. Cause I wasn't a part of it at that, at that point. And while the Python community has certainly been welcoming and, and friendly and everything, I just hadn't experienced the level of passion that, that I experienced okay. with the people in the, the Julia community. Um, so that has been a really fun thing to, uh, to see and, and become a part of. That, that uh, has been what has been most enjoyable for myself as well over the years, right? So, you know, you asked me about what's, uh, what are the things that were surprising. So this, for, for me, I, I would say has been, you know, the most, like having someone like, for example, a neuroscience professor like Tim Holy becoming, like spending so much of his time and becoming like a core contributor to Julie. I mean, like in what world would that connection yeah. exist, right? Yeah. Um, and and like I mean, and just the the kind of people who've been attracted to the project, the friendships that we've created, that we built over over the years, um, the fact that many of them actually work at Julia Computing, and you know, you know, like this is like you know, their their career now, and the fact that like it's it's this collective mission that we all started with, right? That the world can be better if there's you know if we have more computational tools that, you know, uh, right? Like like computation, in, in my view, co computation is the answer to the challenges that we face today in the world. And and it's not the only answer, but it's a part of the answer, right? Like whether yes, you're building yeah. your next batteries or your next, you know, renewable energy grid, or, you know, whether you're, um, um, you know, designing your, your new electric vehicle or, or, you know, what have you, right? Um, there's so many of these things, new materials, um, you know, we're designing new uh, air conditioners with our, our colleagues at uh, Mitsubishi Electric. Um, there, there was there, there was a fantastic story around a, a new crash simulation platform that that one of our uh, other uh, customers is, is is collaborating with us now. Um, it's going to be a talk at, at JuliaCon, and it's just seeing sort of these kinds of things, right? The fact that we can drive industrial innovation and and sort of cut down those design times, right? Bring machine learning into science, I just feel like, you know, that mission has been sort of crafted by the community at large together. You know, it's something that we started, but, you know, it could not have been what it is without like someone like Krishna Kakas driving this entire scientific machine learning ecosystem, for example, right? And yeah. and, and it's those friendships and, and collaborations. And, and I think those have been the most fruitful and uh, fun parts of this. Um, and, and I'm sure that similar things exist in all other communities, but, um, you know, uh, I, I, I would be biased, but I, I, I have <laughs> not experienced this in other communities myself, but, uh, but I'm greatly biased. I'm really curious on that note, because you were mentioning so many things about computation, right? And that's like computation and data science. These are the things that like interest me. Um, but it seems like there's a fairly good chance that Julia is going to end up eventually being used for more general purpose types of things down the line already like the, if you look at the packages that are being created and registered you see some like web development things you see 
all sorts of things popping up, and I'm curious to see over the next five, ten years what's going to happen. It was it was it was always meant to be more general purpose than say R or MATLAB were like that. We were very right. clear about that from day one. So you know that's why we always had like a uh, you know asynchronous. Uh, so like we've always had core routines, for example, um, or we call tasks in Julia. We've always had. Uh, you know, socket programming, distributed computing, all of these things that you're not associate with a language of this kind. Yeah. Uh, but it has been surprising for me, like the fact that someone like a company like Relational builds a whole database in Julia, I mean, that's crazy, right? If you think about it and step back from something that started off, you know, in the academic world as it did, but the fact that it did, like, like something as core and robust and deeply systems oriented as a database um, or, or the fact that like Adrian has built this, you know, Genie framework, right? Which is a web framework. Right. Yeah. That has been another surprising thing for me. Like I, I knew that Julia could be used for those things. We knew that we had designed it so that it did not exclude those things. But, uh, you know, but the success of multiple dispatch, like, like the tremendous success, like where it's a hundred X better than other primitives for all forms of, you know, numerical computing. Right. I wasn't, I personally wasn't sure if the 100x transplants to like writing a database or a web framework, um, yeah. but, it, but it seems like it does increasingly. And um, I would say that has been very surprising for me, but pleasantly surprising, right? And yeah, uh, it, it would be great to see that, that, that mature and grow. We, we recently interviewed Bogomil Kaminsky about his oh. Julia for Data Analysis book, and he gave an example uh, that he has from the book where he's got some data that gets read in and does some sort of simple analysis on it and then serves uh, some sort of visualization for that data uh, on like a on, a on a website using the Genie framework. And it's the, you know, the entire pipeline is in Julia. And when he was explaining, when he was showing this to me, kind of in the back of my mind, I was thinking, yeah, I mean, I've done similar stuff like that in Python, but then it dawned on me that the major difference though is that when I do that in Python, I'm using libraries that under the hood are leveraging a lot of lower level languages like C or C++ mm -hmm. or, or something uh, to, to do some of the analysis or whatever. When you go look at these libraries that he was using to do that in Julia, they're 100% written in Julia. There is no other language involved. And to me, that is the the major difference and the, the powerful one because... I personally run into issues where, you know, I come across some edge case or a bug or something. And then when I go to investigate it, I find that it's, you know, there's something written in, in C++ and it's like, uh, I don't have time to try to figure this out or whatever. And, you know, you, you leave a bug report and hope maybe something will, <laughs> will happen with it. But with Julia and granted, I'm not a Julia expert, but I at least, know the language that I'm going to read. So if I come across something, I go look, you know, and so much of it's open source, if not 100% of the stuff that we it, it goes back to your gorillas.base example, right? Like the fact that it's written <laughs> in the same language that you're sort of, you know, comfortable with. And right. Like, yeah, <laughs> exactly. And so, you know, it's so much easier to just sort of go in and, okay, I see what what's going on here. And then, of course, the extensibility, it's so easy then to sort of write your own patch for it. To, to move along and get going. And then obviously, you know, if you're a responsible citizen, then you can, you know, carry that up upstream yes, and everything. But, but yeah, I mean, that level of just being able to, to look at things at all the levels and it, you just, it's all the same language. I've never experienced that before. 
And I think that's, you know, for me is just one of the coolest things about the Julia ecosystem that everything that I've touched so far has been a hundred percent Julia. So I can just dive in as deep as I want to go and, and be in familiar ter- territory. Alan has a beautiful phrase for it. He calls it Julia all the way down. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was maybe curious about like the early days of using Julia. Like how did you interact with it? Was it so I remember, what was it? Adam was an IDE when I first started looking at Julia. Oh, um, yeah. um, and then just using the REPL. But I was just curious, I guess like maybe them or something? Or what, what did you use early on when you interacted with Julia? And also, the REPL is awesome, by the way. So I just have to say that. I love the Julia REPL. The, the REPL was in there like, you know, in the first few commits already. Like the REPL has always been there along with the logo and the start screen that we see. They've, they've like literally been there from like day one, practically speaking. It, the, the REPL was not that nice in the early days. So we used to uh, wrap it around, you know, with this utility called RL wrap. So that added read line kind of, you know, facilities on top of this thing. Um, but uh, very, very quickly it got some read line integration and then that eventually got replaced with terminals.jl and all of that stuff being done natively in Julia. Um, and then, you know, I personally did, you know, wrote everything in Emacs uh, myself. And because I started that long ago, I think my, my muscle memory is still tied to Emacs for Julia. And I haven't found myself uh, in the VS Code world. Um, <laughs> but I did adopt the notebook. So, you know, I, I started using a little bit of Jupyter um, at, you know, at the time when that took off. Uh, but of course, that's Pluto notebooks now. Um, and and that's, that's how that's... Uh, that's how that's progressing. And uh, especially for those of us who work inside um, the Julia, you know, inside the core of Julia, like you can't use the tooling for that is built for people who work like using Julia, right? So yeah. that's, mm-hmm. um, that's part of the, the challenge there. The, the REPL has been, I, I think, you know, I, when I started, when I first got the interest in, okay, maybe I should learn Julia, uh, it was is still kind of like, you know, I don't know, I'll dabble with a little bit and kind of see what happens. The REPL experience pretty much just sold it on to me immediately. Where I was kind of like, wow, I just want to use this for everything. Like, I just wish everything were this nice. The REPL and, and... is insanely good, and people have made it, like, really... Like, I, I learn about new REPL features all the time. And you can get quite far before you have to move to an editor, right? Like, uh, that's, right. that's how I... Absolutely. And, and again, it kind of goes back to, like you were saying, with Julia all the way down. I guess it was, it was shocking to me coming, f- you know, my history with other languages and other, you know, interpreted uh, languages or, or that have a REPL and things like that. You sort of have certain expectations when you have a REPL, but you also sort of e- expect a lot of limitations because that's just what right. <laughs> there's always have lots of limitations. And so, for example, in, in Python, you know, the standard Python REPL is is okay. It's certainly like it, it gets the job done and you can do a lot with it. But to really be productive, I found personally that you have to move to something like the IPython REPL. That's what I do. That's the first thing I install if I want to use Python. Right. Yeah. And, you know, if you, the package management story, which, I mean, we don't need to get into all, yeah. <laughs> all of that, but, uh, you know, and it's come a long way and it's gotten a lot better. Uh, but 
it, it sort of seems like, okay, you're going to use Python, then you need to go grab this other thing over here for your REPL, and then you've got to go grab this other thing over here for your package management. And, and it's it's not just like install the language and you're ready to go. And so that was, again, it was something that when I started using Julia, uh, it was like, wait, oh, I've got this REPL. I was like, wait a second, this is like just as powerful, if not more powerful than the IPython REPL. And it's just the one that comes with the language. Like this is- It's default. It's amazing. <laughs> yeah. That made me, because I spend a, like, whenever I program, I spend the vast majority of my time in the REPL. I love the interactive programming and everything. Uh, and so that just immediately, it was like, okay, this feature alone has convinced me that I'm I'm probably going to use <laughs> use the language for for something, uh, and I and it sounds like that was a, a a large part of the story from from the beginning that that was something you you wanted was a, a yes. solid REPL experience. It was it was very much there from the beginning, and it was incrementally worked on to become what it has. I mean, we always knew we wanted it. You know, when you're used to the open source ecosystem, like you, you kind of and if you're a command line person, which all of us were. Um, then we knew that like, you know, the, the, the other answer, the other side to it is like, oh, you have a beautiful IDE and then you do everything through the IDE and clicking around with the mouse and, and all that yeah. stuff. And yes, that's nice to have, but not at the expense of having a really powerful REPL. Like I personally don't like getting my hands off the keyboard when yeah. I'm programming. Like I don't want to move to the mouse. So, and, and I think a lot of, a lot of uh, you know, the, the early developers felt that way and that's why the REPL just became like as powerful as it has. Like yeah. it's, it's a pretty fully featured IDE if you ask me of its own. I mean, stretching it a little bit. But I mean, it's, it's you, close. Yeah. <laughs> you get the REPL and you get Unicode plots and you're done. Right, yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, and, and also just the fact that the package manager is just a part of the language. I mean, it was something that was like so refreshing um, and that there is sort of like an official package management story, like just, from the beginning this was, this was i would say that one of the things that we saw with python early on where we were like you know this just does not seem like this seems like a problem that we should address um in julia and uh and stefan was very clear about what it needed to be like and he spent years building the package manager um and and then after we built the package manager we had to go and build the whole package server infrastructure which which is not as visible but for example, there have been packages that have been like, you know, like GitHub repositories that go away or orgs that get deleted. And you don't even notice it because it's all in the package server cache. If it was licensed and registered, if it was an open source license and registered, that lives on in the registry um, and, and, you know, upstream changes. Like you don't get the LPAD incidents, for example. Right, yeah. That's exactly what was coming, coming to my mind, yeah. <laughs> we, we just yesterday discovered a package that had been deleted from the registry and i was like oh this is not sorry sorry not from the registry uh, upstream right the upstream project mm -hmm. or org for whatever reason got renamed or deleted didn't exist if you click on the actual github project page it doesn't exist but if you go pkg.add it it actually you know just comes through as if nothing changed mm -hmm. and so anything that depended on it would not break and i was like wow right like we just sort of did not face this problem because it was designed you know, to avoid this altogether. I would not be surprised if those aspects of the language are key factors in growing adoption uh, in outside of like the numerical and scientific uh, world. I don't think 
many people have sort of gotten there yet, but as as Julia becomes more and more, uh, I guess people more more people become aware of it. I I would not be surprised because that was just my immediate reaction was because I I wasn't really coming to it from like a numerical scientific. I was really more just like a curiosity standpoint of like I, mean, I kind of want to learn uh, this language, and I, it just it just felt so good and so comfortable that it was just kind of like, I can't imagine every time I work in another language now, I'm going to miss all these things, you know? <laughs> like, and so, and, and those are powerful emotions that would, you know, if you have the opportunity to say, you know, I want to choose this language for this project I'm starting. If you just feel that good about the ecosystem and, or the, the tooling around it that exists, that's just native to the language itself, then you know that that's probably going to help you or greatly influence uh, your your decision uh, in it. So yeah, I wouldn't be surprised at all if if those those features sort of become uh, important factors in adoption in, in other other areas. I think Rust did some very interesting things with their package management. So they're also you know they've also they sort did. of learned from the past things and and done you know uh, a very good job and. Uh, and, you know, I, I believe people from the Julia community have taken some of the learnings and brought back, right? So, for example, like there's Rust up for installing like different versions of Rust and all that. Yep. Um, there is now Julia up and we are hoping that it becomes the standard tool in, in and, and how people install Julia. Because while there's a, you know, great package ecosystem, installing Julia itself is like a little bit of a manual process. And, you're, right. and Rust up kind of, uh, Julia up does what Rust up does, um, you know, there in the Rust world. And so it's just, you know, the world is just moving and continuing to evolve. And it's, it's great to see sort of, you know, the Julia community learn from other ecosystems. And I also see the, the reverse, right? We see other ecosystems learning from, from us in the, in the way we run things. Yeah. Um, I've been seeing uh, some chatter around the Fortran, um, you know, mailing lists and stuff <laughs> around where, like how, you know, they're talking about like, hey, there's some lessons to learn from Julia around how we position a numerical computing ecosystem and we're doing some pretty amazing work out there. That's got to be an interesting feeling as one of the co-creators to see those discussions going on in like very well-established <laughs> communities are like, wow, something we made is having an impact in, in, in those, those areas. I imagine that's probably a little surreal even. <laughs> so looking forward, you know, to the future of, of Julia, what are some things that you see, like really and positive things that you are looking forward to, and maybe some challenges that you see uh, in the future? Those are those are, those are very good questions, and uh, so I'm, and this is my personal view of what I think Julia is and where it will go, and and of course, you know, the truth is that it's a union of what every all of us want. But I, I personally have always been driven by science and, 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 you know, combining my love for programming and science into this, you know, world of computational science has been really awesome for me. Um, so I'm excited about that. You know, the, the one, of, one of the things that I'm most excited about is that direction where we keep pushing the state of the art in what, you know, computational simulation allows us to do and, and, and what impact it has on the world. And the fact that Julia Computing is at the center of it is able to, you know, um, build the kinds of products that no one else is building or imagining. Um, that's just amazing uh, in in my in my mind. And like, not to you know, that dive deep into the products or the strategy, but just that broad idea of you know, computation sort of saving the world at some level is is what you know really drives me uh, forward and then excites me. And 
And I think a lot of the people in our community think the same way, right? Um, like there's so many people who want to contribute. Um, there, there was that original article in back in 2015. Um, gosh, I forget. You know, about what, what can a software engineer do uh, for climate change? Um, and, uh, and, and if you, if you read that and you look at everything the the Julia community and Julia computing have achieved in the last few years, it's pretty much like everything that is listed in there. And that is a very comprehensive, wow. you know, blog post, uh, by Brett Victor. Um, it, and, and I would, I would encourage everyone to read it. Uh, so, so that's, I would say sort of articulates uh, a lot of what excites me and what I think where our place in the world is, what our purpose is. Um, and, and the fact that Julia Computing can keep driving it um, in that direction from a commercial standpoint, in addition to all the amazing things that, the, that we are doing as part of the broader community. Yeah. There, there are many challenges. And, and you know, like one of, the, one of the problems is that, you know, when you're sort of building these things uh, and when you're on the inside, you only see the problems. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you never see the you know, uh, all the amazing things everyone's doing. So every once in a while when I go to a conference and I meet someone and they say, oh, look at this amazing thing I've done in Julia. And I'm like, wait, this thing actually does work. Um, <laughs> but, you know, one, one of the things, especially for, for, uh, for modeling and simulation workloads we need to fix is the way our compiler works. Um, there are a lot of uh, compiler passes that are maybe quadratic time or worse, where the person who wrote those never imagined that a simulation person's gonna throw in a basic block of a million lines of code. They're like, oh, how much could a human write? Maybe a thousand lines. Okay, this <laughs> algorithm's fine. And then comes the then come these auto-generated tools, right? Yeah. Like all these DSLs in Julia, where you can generate like millions of lines of Julia code by writing just like a for loop or something. Yeah. Um, and and it stresses the hell out of the compiler. Um, and so so finding those and fixing those is a huge priority, which will also you know, improve the broader compiler speed and compiler experience for all use cases. Yeah. Um, you know, whether you're building a database or a website, um, you know, all of this will kind of come back to that. Um, another another thing that I, I have just been discussing with Stefan and Jeff extensively, and, you know, we'll, we'll hopefully get time to get to that is separate compilation, which is, you know, today you sort of build your Julia program as this one big system image, right? And in my mind, and uh, not everyone agrees with me, but in my mind, one way to sort of scale uh, the use of Julia in an organization is to have larger teams working on different parts of an application all in Julia. And I think separate compilation is an important part of enabling that, that if everyone has to build this gigantic system image every time they change a line of code, um, that's going to be difficult. So tooling around incremental system images, separate compilation, tiered jitting of Julia program so that you know you start interpreting while you're compiling in the background so you remove that latency, uh, compilation latency that, that everyone talks about a lot. Yeah. Uh, I think these are some of the key things uh, in scaling uh, scaling Julia, not, not in terms of running Julia programs at scale, but scaling the way teams of people work on Julia um, yeah. themselves. I think these are some some crucial fundamental things that, that we'll be working on over the next few years, in fact. I mean, these are long these are large projects right if they were quick they could have you know if it's low hanging fruit we would have picked it already um so so these are the things that that i think uh, need to happen in the core and uh and there's a lot of thought going into it and you know there's gonna just be more and more of this so by no means uh, is the language done and you know like closed i mean in some sense right. there's, there's years and years of 
language design, language improvements. I mean, I, I think broadly we are there on, on the actual syntax and APIs. I mean, that will see some, some changes maybe, but under the hood in the compiler, um, uh, and, and to enable all of this, there, there will be you know version 2.0 and a 3.0, which won't just be cosmetically different, but like fundamentally making huge strides in the way we evolve um, as a language and as a community and an ecosystem. Yeah, and and I think it ties back to the larger mission. So you know, like you know, when when someone fixes uh, something at the compiler, it changes the climate simulation code and makes it possible to do things that were not possible before. So in, in my mind, this is one of the few places where you can see a direct linkage from low level work in the compiler or library um, to like you know its impact on meaningful contributions to the world. Well, we're all we want to thank you so much for joining us today we do have a couple of of questions that we ask at the very end all of our uh guests uh one of them you've you've already kind of answered so the first one we usually ask is you know if you're going to write some julia code what what do you use to write it uh, okay. and it sounds like you're still are you still using emacs primarily or e emacs and increasingly vs code and the second one is what is your favorite julia package <laughs> <laughs> and I know I, it's hard to pin it down to one, but <laughs> it's hard to pin it down. There are so many good ones, but so, something about Unicode plots is just too elegant for me. So I, I'm going to pick that one. <laughs> That's a good one. That's a good one. <laughs> it's just too cute and, and too, uh, you know, too amazing of an idea that it has to be my favorite package, I would say. Well, and it, what's interesting is there's been a lot of sort of focus and interest around the terminal lately in, in a lot of different ecosystems. That's I'm true. not sure if you've been following the, there's a, a Python project called uh, Rich and Textual, which is uh, focused on making really beautiful, like TUIs, text user interfaces in the terminal. And uh, there's the term.jl. Uh, yes. I don't know if you've seen that, that um, has come out in Julia, which is, I know, heavily influenced by Rich. Uh, there's also, uh, I can't remember, Oh, I can't remember the name of it now. Uh, a project they just released it, uh, made it generally available. I want to say it's called like Fig or something like that, which is almost like a it's like a really powerful autocomplete for the terminal. So, and I don't know what language it's written in or anything. It's you know general purpose tool that you install in, in like in your terminal. It's interesting how the over the last few years it seems like there's been a lot of effort put into making the terminal a, a more beautiful and better experience. And so we might see something in the in the near future where you can do like your all of your data analysis and visualization just in the in the or maybe not all of your visualization, but a good portion of it, you know, in the in the terminal. So Unicode plots may, might be a, an early step in that direction. Yeah, that's that's yeah. a good point. I think I think that's a, that's a, that's a fantastic observation. I hadn't personally pieced pieced sort of this trend together, but I'm gonna go back and look at all these projects now that you mentioned. So this is this is great. There's a lot of interesting stuff going on there. It's uh it's fascinating to me because it seems like a in some sense like a regression, but in a really new way. Like it's a, it's a really like let's go back to this sort of old technology, but do something really really unique with it because you know a lot of software developers and software engineers spend a significant amount of their time in a, in a terminal. So why not make it a better experience? <laughs> well, I mean, and it, you know, like, I mean, new technology is old technology, you know, yeah. in a new way, right? I mean, Elon Musk is, uh, you know, going back 
uh, into space, uh, something that we did in the 60s, but, you know, or, you know, and now it's being done in a modern way and yeah. the terminals are sort of much of the same, right, in, in, in that respect. Or languages and compilers and pretty much everything that we do. I mean, you know, it's, it's interesting to sort of watch that, you know, uh, progress, right? And yeah. how, much, how much remains the same, but then also you know, how much is new. Well, Viral, thank you so much for, for joining us. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on, on the podcast. We look forward to maybe running into you at, uh, at, at JuliaCon. Yeah, thank you for having me. This has been wonderful. Yeah, yeah. We should have another one. I really want to ask you more about your linear algebra loves, <laughs> I suppose. <laughs> that, that would be a fun one to have. And, uh, and, and I think there are many others in the community who might also be very interested in talking about, uh, you know, about linear algebra and graphs and um, yeah. and the connections in these worlds. I mean, um, and and that community is now increasingly uh, you know participating in Julia. So it's just just amazing to see that. Well, thank you so much. Thanks for talking Julia with us, and uh, we will see you soon. All right. Bye. <laughs> see Bye. You.